Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTay. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we're sticking with the ongoing crisis in Gaza, but instead of focusing on what's happening on the ground over there, we want to talk about the impact the Israeli-Palestine issue has had on British politics, and has always had on British politics, since the very idea of a Jewish homeland was first endorsed by the British government back in 1917. So the question we're going to ask today is, why has British policy towards Israel and Palestine zigzagged so much since the First World War? And what does this mean for British politics today? It is nearly 16 years since he recruited me to the Zionist movement. It's my belief, and I say it with deep sorrow, that at the present time, the only sure foundation of peace and of the prevention of actual war rests upon strength. Even as Israeli Prime Minister Mrs. Golda Meir talked with Mr. Wilson, shells were falling on her country from across the Jordan border. I think you know the position so far as the very grave situation in the Middle East is concerned. What I'm trying to do this week is not say to the Palestinians, don't come to the UN, they're coming. Right? It's their right to come, they can come. Let's find, whatever happens at the UN, let's find a balanced way that we can restart the negotiation. Because if we don't do that, then borders, uh, Jerusalem, refugees, security, these issues remain unresolved. Why did you call Hamas and Hezbollah your friends? What I did was spoke at a meeting in which I said I wanted all people involved in the Middle East issue to come together and be able to have a discussion, to be able to well, discuss... Said, oh, can, I, can, I, can, I, can you allow me to finish? While I understand calls for a ceasefire at this stage, I do not believe that it is the correct position now. Right, Helen, back to the start then, as ever. So the Balfour Declaration in 1917, this kind of iconic, controversial statement. This is Arthur Balfour, we should say. This is Lloyd George's foreign secretary, informally really, throwing the British state's support behind the idea of a Jewish homeland. He does this 
in a letter. It's not a, a white paper or anything like that. It's nothing absolutely formal, but it is a crucial moment in this story. I just wanted to give some context before we got into the geopolitics of this and how this came about, just the sort of political context, because I think it's important. At this point, it's Labour, really, which is the natural home for British Jews and support for Zionism, or not just Labour, but the left in general, so the Liberals as well. So you'd had this really since the Tory government had voted to restrict Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe in 1905. We discussed this in a previous podcast about immigration. So check that out if you want some more information on that. But the idea of Zionism itself at this point is largely a left-wing idea. The first person to make the case in the cabinet, at least, is a guy called Herbert Samuel, who is the Liberal Home Secretary. Uh, Labour had called for a Jewish state even before the Balfour Declaration. The party's 1917 War Aims Memorandum called for, in quotes, a free state under international guarantee to which some of the Jewish people, as desired to do so, may return. This was endorsed by the Labour Party Conference, Parliamentary Labour Party, and the National Executive Committee. Richard Johnson has written a great piece on this for Unheard. So that's the kind of politics of it. So you had, on the right, there was more scepticism. On the left, they were instinctively supportive of the very idea because it felt it was part of the time of support for nationalism, national causes for those who didn't have a homeland, which obviously included the Jews of Europe. So That's the politics. Helen, take us through the geopolitics. Yeah, I think here we need to start with what was the situation in what was then called um, Palestine at the start of the First World War. Mm. So Palestine was actually part of the Ottoman Mm. um, Empire, actually effectively part of the Ottoman Empire was considered Ottoman Syria. And I don't think that we can understand why British cabinet was even thinking about Mm. supporting the idea of a Jewish homeland in Palestine without seeing what had happened to British interests as the British government understood them during the the course of the First World War. And that goes back to the the central issue of the Suez Canal. We talked about this in like a number of episodes because it just kind of reoccurs. So central. I can't believe how central it is. It recurs of being something of of immense geopolitical um, significance. And for the British at that point, it is crucial because it's the essentially the maritime transportation link to India. Yeah. And India is the most important part um, of the, the British Empire, mm. strategically at least. And the British have since the 1880s when they militarily occupied Egypt, which was formerly still part of the, the Ottoman Empire, believed that the canal could be defended just from Egypt. And they looked on the other side of the canal and saw the Sinai Desert. and A buffer. Like a buffer. And that that wasn't something that they had to worry about. So long as they controlled Egypt militarily, that they controlled the canal. But then what happened in February of 1915, that Ottoman and German forces moved through the desert and reached the canal. And although the British were able to push back against that, and by the end of the, the First World War, win some pretty significant battles in what was Palestine, including in, in, in 1917 um, for Jerusalem, that I think is a really 
seismic moment for the British imperial political class mm. because they now understand, particularly as air power is beginning to, to have some significance, not the significance it's going to have later as we'll um, see, that the canal can be attacked from the north. Do they reach the canal before the Sykes-Pico agreement? Because that's the same year. This is the they agreement. reached the canal in February of 1915. It's interesting that Samuel, who you've mentioned, the Liberal Home Secretary, he makes his case to the cabinet in a month before that. But he's having to make the argument and saying, essentially, we should support a homeland for the Jewish people in a possibly British Palestine. Because obviously at this time, yeah. there is no British control of mm. Palestine. So in order for the Balfour Declaration in any way to be meaningful, the British have actually to control Palestine and be recognised in some sense by other powers as controlling Palestine. And obviously we're going to come to that in a moment. But I think that we need to see that the Balfour Declaration, in a, in a sense, is the is secondary to the first strategic objective after February 1915, which is that we have to control Palestine. That, yeah. that has to be now the buffer to defend the Suez Canal and our passage to um, India, because otherwise everything is vulnerable. So I think it's, this whole thing starts in a moment of shock, really, to the British government about what is now at stake as modern warfare changed. Yeah. Uh, about controlling the canal. It's interesting as well because the Zionists in Palestine at that time, there are obviously a lot who had already made the journey to the area uh, before the First World War had started. And they seem to understand this very quickly, that actually the Ottoman Empire is very vulnerable and might not just lose the war, but may well collapse. And so they're faced with this strategic challenge as well about what to do. Do they start to agitate against the Ottoman Empire uh, in the hope that it will collapse? But run the risk, obviously, that if the Ottoman Empire maintains its power, that they're in a really difficult position. Now, they had seen what would happen to the Armenians in Turkey, which is obviously part of the Ottoman Empire during the First World War, and they panicked that this could well happen to them. So anyway, there was a divide within Zionism between do we try and ameliorate the Ottomans or do we throw our weight in with the British who may well end up in control of this? And actually, it's the right in this divide who see that the, the British as potentially much more open to the very idea of a, of a Jewish state. I think as well, the other factor we have to bring in from the, the British position on this in 1915 is the concern that actually the, peop the, the state that will end up possibly controlling Palestine is the French. Yeah, yeah. And so that this is also not particularly good from the, the British point of view. It's not as bad probably as the Ottomans and the Germans controlling the Suez Canal, but they don't want the French controlling I mean, the Suez Canal either. I mean, there's been obviously been a, a tussle. Maybe we should do at one point in an episode just yeah. on the Suez Canal. Okay. Go back to the, why the British are there in the first place in the 1880s, because it's the French that have built the canal. On that, Helen, quickly, the Jews in Palestine as well are also fearful of the French taking over. And I, I did come across an interesting point in the reading for this, reading some uh, history of Israel. And they were saying that they favoured the British because the British had this reputation for allowing people within the empire, well, white people within the empire, a certain degree of nationalism, Australia, Canada, those kind of things. Whereas the French, you would become French citizens and you would become, you're expected to become French. And obviously that's not what they wanted from a future Israel. So again, they made a strategic choice for Britain rather 
than for France. And then you had, I think I came across an amazing fact as well, that the British created this thing called the Zion Mule Corps, which is the first organized group of Jews to fight under a Jewish flag since Roman times. And this was based in Egypt, I think, and it was a kind of defense force to then push against the Ottomans. So you're having some amazing things that are happening at this like formative moment. Yeah, I think the thing we should now bring in is what happens when the war ends. Mm. Because the British effectively do have control of Palestine. And I think we should bring out here that Palestine, what that means in the context of the mandate, the League of Nations mandate that Britain will end up with for Palestine includes what was then called Transjordan mm. and which is present-day Jordan. Uh, and this was informally, if you like, decided in the San Remo Conference of 1920, which was a meeting of the Allied Supreme Council, though the United States was only there as an observer. And actually, this is a whole other story, but the Americans are very unhappy about quite a lot of what happens at the San um, Remo Conference. But there were recommendations for three League of Nations mandates, one for Syria, which is to the French, Palestine and Mesopotamia to the, the British. And then these get put to the League of Nations once it's established so that they become the League of Nations mandates. But what's interesting, I think, here is, is that this is still Lord George's coalition government yeah. that is doing this and that the British government under Lord George has made sure that the other powers are recognising the Balfour Declaration as part of the mandates. Yeah. But once the Conservative government takes office in October 1922, once Lloyd George is gone mm. and a Conservative government takes power, there is actually considerable deliberation within that Conservative government about whether they should continue with this yeah. policy. Well, that San Remo conference is sort of formalising these very informal and ambiguous statements. The Balfour Declaration is, you know, astonishingly ambiguous in many ways. It calls for a, a national home for the Jewish people, but doesn't really say where those boundaries will be, when it will come about, you know, what what will happen to the Arabs that already live there. And so you have the San Remo Conference, who, which, which formalizes, and then Churchill comes in in 1921. He is Secretary of State for the Colonies, and he had been a supporter of uh, Zionism, but he kind of rose back from this quite quickly, and, and at least from from the Israeli perspective, he kind of carves away some of the land that they thought that the British had promised them in the Balfour Declaration, and he carves away east of the Jordan River. Now, this is what becomes Jordan, Transjordan. I mean, I, I thought it was interesting reading this, thinking how it's not just. Israel that emerges from this kind of uh, colonial great powers dividing things up, but so much of the Middle East, I mean, Transjordan itself. Yeah, I mean, this is done actually, isn't it? Because I think Churchill does that in um, the June of 1922. So that's a white paper where the commitment to the Balfour Declaration is maintained, but there's some limits put on the how many Jewish people can migrate to Palestine. And as you say, it separates out Transjordan from the Palestine. Kind of shrinking our, our well, it, commitment. It, it doesn't. It, it maintains Transjordan in the Palestine mandate, but it basically carves it out as a place which isn't going to be subject to the Balfour. Right. Oh, I see. Yeah. I think that's what happens. Then the new government comes in under Stanley Baldwin in that um Autumn, and this is then when the whole thing is getting deliberated. I think um, it's in June 23, 
when um, Baldwin sets up a cabinet um, committee to, to study the problem and say, look, basically, should we continue with this? And, and basically the argument that wins is that the canal is so central, mm-hmm. the defence of it must now rest in Palestine and not in Egypt, as, as had been the case since the, the 1880s, and that too much British credibility had been invested in the Balfour Declaration, including getting other powers to support it, that it wasn't possible to go back. Yeah, of course. So it's not a completely ringing endorsement of the Balfour Declaration. It's a ringing endorsement of the British must control Palestine. Yeah, and at this point, we're just trying to maintain sort of calm control of an area that is important for us geostrategically. And so... You can see the same kind of policies that we always adopt and we adopt in India and to try and calm ethnic tensions and keep a lid on everything. And so you see this, I think, in the policies that are then adopted up all the way up until the Second World War, which is right, okay, we've got Arab revolts against Jewish immigration into the area so we need to limit jewish immigration and we need to potentially and that, and this is where you start to, the partition of the land starts to become but also restrict jewish rights to own land yeah. in palestine yeah and so this is britain's colonial control of this area i mean i think the key point in this period is the arab revolt in 1936, isn't it? 1936 to 1939, which I, I don't know, when I was reading, I thought of it as a kind of, you know, an intifada as we would see it now. And the Brits desperate to avoid this violence. And so we come out with a white paper in 1939, in 1939 which proposes an annual limit of 9,000 Jewish immigrants into the area. Now, this effectively is a, a reduction in immigration of 85%. And this is happening, of course, at the very moment of Jewish crisis in Europe, where people are desperate to leave Europe. And so this is a political issue in Britain as well. And again, it divides more, I think, left-right, and that the left are saying, oh, this is a disgrace. You are blocking a route, a humanitarian corridor, out of this inferno in Europe because of colonial notions, colonial control notions. I think as well, it's important to say that part of that white paper is a commitment that there will be an independent state of Palestine within yeah. 10 years. And that given the restrictions that go with it in terms of Jewish migration, that is going to, at least by implication, be an Arab majority Palestinian state. I mean, the only thing I would qualify a bit on the party politics of this is that if you go back to like 1930, mm-hmm. So this is six years before the Arab revolt. You have Ramsay MacDonald's minority Labour government Mm -hmm. draws up a not dissimilar white paper, the Passfield white paper. Okay. And that then it becomes clear as MacDonald is attacked from within the Mm -hmm. Labour Party, but also by liberals and conservatives on that, that he ends up withdrawing it. And so it's kind of like a little prelude of what goes on. And I think in 1939, but it also suggests that actually there is some willingness of the parties in parliament, at least, to use the issue to attack governments. Right. But I think the bigger thing about 1939 that we should sort of bring in is this is another moment, though, where the geopolitical calculus facing Britain about the Middle East has changed. It isn't just now... A question of the Arab revolt. And there's already been essentially nationalism in Egypt 
that has had to be accommodated by nominal independence for Egypt going back to like 1922. But if we pick up on the canal story again, what we can see is another big shock to the British governing class, if you like, and that is the Italian invasion of Abyssinia that begins like in 1935, where they actually use the canal mm -hmm. to move materials like through for the uh, conquest. The French aren't willing to act in concert with the British militarily against that. It's kind of like reverse, if you like, of the Suez crisis of like 1956. Oh, right. And the lesson that the British strategic planners draw from that, though, is now the canal is vulnerable to an attack from a European power with air force, particularly if Germany were to support Italy mm -hmm. in that and can close it. And that now it isn't just a disaster. That wouldn't just be a disaster for Britain from the point of view of the India question, but it would be a total disaster from the point of view of the ability of, of Britain to receive oil from Iran, which is dominated by the mm -hmm. Anglo-Persian Oil Company, which the British state is majority owner in and comes through the canal. That would mean Britain getting cut off from its oil supply during the course of a world war, which is actually right, what, exactly what happens. Exactly what happens. <laughs> When the uh, Italians invade Egypt in 1940, the canal is closed until like 1943. And the British spent a lot of time in the 1920s, the first part of the 1930s, saying we cannot have a repeat of the First World War if we go to war again, in which we're dependent upon American oil supplies. Right. And the remedy for that is oil from Iran, to some extent from Mesopotamia as well, but principally from Iran that comes through the canal. So if that gets shut off, then that is a strategic disaster. So I think there is a way of then saying, is it is it just really the Arab revolt that's causing the reverse mm -hmm. in 1939? Because to all intents and purposes, it is a repudiation of the powerful declaration, the 1939 white paper. Yeah, yeah. Is it, again, that British judgment about how that they can defend the openness of the Suez Canal and the vulnerabilities around that is changing. Well, I think it's certainly seen as a, um, a repudiation or a betrayal in Israel among the Jews of Palestine. And Ben-Gurion comes up with this formulation of what to do with, because I mean, their dilemma is appalling. If you think about it, they've got this white paper that they think of as a betrayal. But Britain's main opponent almost immediately after that is Nazi Germany, which is obviously trying to wipe out um, uh, Europe's Jews. And so Ben-Gurion comes up with this formulation, which is we will fight the British against Hitler as if there was no white paper, and we will fight the white paper as if there was no war. And this is the way he gets around. So it's almost parked, I think, as an issue until the end of the war. And then what you see is quite quickly after the Allied victory is that the Jews in Palestine take the fight back to the British. And then you're seeing them fighting the British against the white paper and for their own homeland. Because from their perspective, although the white paper includes the partition of that land with a, Jew a Jewish homeland and a Palestinian homeland, the Palestinian side is very Arab dominated. I think it's something like 80 or 90% Arab. And the Jewish homeland would be it's almost like 55, 45, I think, from memory. But it's, the demographics are very different. It, I, I guess it, it reminds me a way, in a way of Ireland and the divide between north and south in Ireland, one side being virtually homogenous and the other side being very divided. And the Jews think, well, within a generation, we could have we could lose this completely and then we're, we're back to square one. So they are opposed to it. And I think it's that, from that point, you get this wave of really Jewish violence against the British 
state, which culminates in this attack on the bombing of the King David Hotel in July 1946. Now, this is an astonishing moment. This is 91 people died in this attack, 28 British, uh, 42 Arabs, 17 Jews. And this is, a, I think, a real Well, shock we should say, isn't it, is, is that the, the King um, David Hotel is the administrative centre of British Palestine. Right, yeah. And there had been an attack before that that I think had been devastating. Uh, uh, 11 coordinated attacks destroyed road and rail bridges, the Haifa railway system, just reading it here. And this was devastating for Britain because it blocked Britain's ability to move goods and soldiers beyond its borders in this area. So it was a coordinated attack. And then I think there'd been this roundup of people after that and all the documents were being held in the King David Hotel. So this was a a very, you know, planned, coordinated, specific attack. And I think in the wider context, Britain is not just becoming sick of having to deal with this issue in the Middle East, but it just can't afford to run the kind of empire that it did pre-war. So this is at, at the same time that Britain is, I mean, it decides really, it just washes its hands of Israel, Palestine, the, the issue in 1947. I mean, that's not just limited to this part of the world. It's doing the same in Greece, essentially saying to the Americans, you're going to have to take over in Greece. And this is the beginnings of uh, NATO, effectively. Uh, it's um, pulling out of India, um, obviously, and the partition there. So this is part of a much bigger picture of Britain not being able to afford to run the kind of colonial enterprise that it did before. Yeah, I think that that's right, Tom. But I would also say that this crisis, I think, the Palestine crisis, starts very early for the Labour government. Mm. So if you go back to that, the general election of 1945, mm. you have Labour campaigning against the 1939 White Paper, right. effectively, and saying that they will allow much higher um, Jewish migration. And now we're talking about Jewish refugees. There were Holocaust survivors, survivors on boats. On boats yeah. that in practice then are going to get turned away. We're going to blockade their, their um, a, um, access. But Labour campaigns against the 1939 white paper, but quite quickly, I mean, very quickly, once mm. it's taken office, it's changing that position. And I think what's clear this time is that the Labour cabinet, at least cabinet, is very divided. Mm over the question. It's not really clear, I think, how committed Attlee is himself to the, the Balfour Declaration. At one point, he describes it as a wild and thoughtless experiment which had been made without perceiving its consequences. Mm. Ernest Bevin is a foreign secretary. The Foreign Office had strongly been pro-Arab yeah. all the way through the, the interwar period as well. But it, I think that Berin also is rather like sceptical itself. And you can see at least the cabinet minutes that have subsequently come out show already by November of 1945 that Berin's saying, we'll try and do something to like set up a settlement here, but we don't really believe we're going to succeed at this. We're going to hand it over yeah. to what's going to be the United Nations. I think another way of thinking about it is that this comes back to bite them is we're going to hand it over to the Americans. Yeah. And so what you see is, first of all, they set up this thing called the Anglo-American Committee of Inquiry on Palestine, but there's no real agreement reached about that, partly because the Truman, who is very committed to the creation of a Jewish state, won't accept a number of the recommendations, which effectively also include asking the Americans to provide financial and economic assistance. Then when that's 
rejected by the, all parties effectively. The, the Atlee government says, oh, we'll just have a committee to work out how to implement it anyway. That's what we're good at. We do, <laughs> we do committees yeah. to run things. Yeah. This comes up with a plan for effectively like a, a federal Palestine, but this again doesn't win any support. And it's February of 1947 when the Atlee government hands the problem over to the United Nations, effectively handing the mandate back to finish this part before we come back and talk about what happens once Israel has been created. I, I think there's a really revealing comment by Bevin, Ernest Bevin, the then Foreign Secretary, on this when he's explaining that decision. He says, the discussions of the last month have quite clearly shown that there was no prospect of resolving this conflict by any settlement negotiated between the parties. But if the conflict has to be resolved by an arbitrary decision, that is not a decision which His Majesty's government are empowered as mandatory to take. Right. Now, it's just like the British it still has an empire and it's saying we can't make arbitrary decisions. Well, obviously, arbitrary decisions are a quite central part <laughs> of like having yes. empires. It's essentially a kind of like exposure, I think, of just how strategically incoherent the whole British imperial position is. And it's not going to be the end of the empire. And I think that is important to stress. It's not going to come as we're going to see in the second half until the end of the 1960s, mm. driven by events in the Middle East. But it's kind of like a statement of powerless. Yes, yeah. No, so it doesn't mean the geopolitical questions aren't are going to go away. But when the British government is saying in 1947, it doesn't know what British geopolitical interests are in its <laughs> empire in the Middle East. That is a testimony, I think, to what is now the, the large failure of the empire. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, so we finished the first half of that episode with the creation of of Israel. Now, Britain leaves and immediately this new state of Israel is plunged into a war with its Arab neighbours. This ends in victory for Israel. Jordan controls the West Bank, Egypt controls Gaza, and this new Jewish homeland has emerged. And Britain has, you know, lost a lot of its empire by this point, and its global interests are shrinking, but it hasn't lost them all. We're still a, quite a player in the Middle East. We've got interest in the Middle East. And obviously this explodes most most obviously in 1956 in the Suez crisis, which you are the expert no, on. So, <laughs> so tell us about that. that. We have to keep, we seemingly keep coming back to the Suez crisis. Through all the period that we've been talking about, Britain has had a pretty difficult relationship with Egypt. If we also go to 1947, British troops have had to withdraw in Egypt to the canal. So when Egypt had become 
formally independent in 1922, the British had retained their military presence. By 1947, as I say, it's down to the canal. Then in 1952, the Egyptian monarchy is overthrown. We have the Egyptian Republic, will be led by Nasser. And he'd already pushed the British into negotiating or insisting really that the British left the Suez Canal, the troops left the Suez Canal as well. But then when the Suez crisis began, which began with NASA nationalising the company that owned the Suez Canal, and as we've talked about before, Britain, France and Israel took military mm. uh, action against Egypt for that, that the American president, Eisenhower, forced them to uh, terminate by bringing financial pressure, particularly on Britain, we can see that actually Britain still did have strategic interests. Mm-hmm in the Middle East, focused around the canal. It's not any longer about the passage to India because... That's gone. That's gone. It's about uh, the ability of oil tankers to come up the Red Sea through the canal and into the Mediterranean. And it isn't just a a British interest now, it's a a West European interest Mm -hmm. because all the West European countries are uh, importing um, oil this way. And what's interesting here is that if you look at the actual logic of the military action before Eisenhower terminated it is kind of fitting with what the rationale, the the geopolitical rationale of the Balfour Declaration had been back Mm -hmm. in 1917 because it's, if you leave the British-French cooperation out of it at least, because it's Israel acting in alliance with Britain against Egypt. And then if you look in the aftermath of that, so in the early 1960s, we can see the British and the French, particularly the French actually initially, acting as strong supporters of Israel, both in terms of providing arms, although it tends to be done rather secretly, Mm -hmm. and supporting it again, particularly the French. But the British are involved in this too, Israel's nuclear programme. Though it's not clear how much understanding there is from the Americans about what the British and the French may be doing um, in this respect, because if we think about it as the geopolitics of the West in relation to Israel, I'd say in the early 1960s, the position had been reversed from what had been under the Truman administration. I was going to say that, yeah. It seemed actually politically and geopolitically that th- everything has reversed in that the geopolitics now look like you want to maintain good relations with Arab countries, if that would be the foreign office perspective, I think. And then politically, it's starting to get difficult for the left in particular. So you'd had Harold Wilson for instance, who had boasted that it would be impossible for a political party to be more committed to a national home for the Jews in Palestine than Labour. And this had been a sort of moral position he'd taken through into his premiership in the 60s. But also at that point, you've got Arab nationalism and its kind of anti-colonial struggle being adopted by the left and not the right in British politics and Western politics in general. So during the Suez crisis, you would have had you know, the empire loyalists, I think they were called on the Tory backbenches, who'd obviously have no sympathy with uh, Arab nationalism and an attempt to push back against Western control in, in these areas. But the left would have been more sympathetic. So then you've got a tension, haven't you? You between- also, you do see anti-war demonstrations on the streets in Britain. As early as that. And during, during the Suez crisis. But I think in terms of the policy level response, so that... The, the British position through the 60s all the way through to the 1967 Arab-Israeli war is to be quite supportive to Israel, yeah. more so 
certainly than the Kennedy administration, but probably not quite as much so as the French were in the early part of the 1960s. The thing, as we know, because we've talked about this in several different ways now, that changes so much is the 1967 Mm -hmm. uh, Arab-Israeli war. Britain's position in that is what you would expect, both from a state that behaved as it did in 1956 in the Suez crisis and one led by Harold Wilson, because Mm. it's Harold Wilson being prime minister at the time, which was strong support for the Israeli government. Yeah. But the fallout of it completely scrambles what's left of Britain's own position in the Middle East. And central to that is the fact that Nasser closes the canal in 1967. And I think we said this before, it stays closed for the next eight years. Wow. Yeah. So this changes both, doesn't it? Because the Israelis, politically and geopolitically, the the Israelis take control of the West Bank and Gaza in this war. And so they become an occupying power from 1967. And the Golan Heights as well. And the Golan Heights, right. And then at the same time, this is the same period in which Britain is withdrawing from east of Suez, announced under Wilson. It is, but I think that the, I think it's not the only thing that's going on with the withdrawal from east of Suez, because what's going on in Aden, present day, like Yemen, or South Yemen as it first was, mm-hmm. is an is important part of that story too. So the, the, the British position in the Persian Gulf is weakening even before the 1967 war, but the closure of the Suez Canal and then the need now to import more expensive transport Mm -hmm. um, oil really ratchets the pressure up on that Labour government. They devalue sterling in November of 1967, which means that in terms of a country uh, of Kuwait, that actually it's much um, less attractive for them to be receiving revenue for their oil sales in sterling than it had previously um, been. It's all playing in. The whole thing is like falling apart. Yeah. And January 1968, Dennis Healy, who is the then Defence Secretary in Wilson's government announces this withdrawal that comes to be called the withdrawal from East of Suez. And that really, outside Hong Kong, I'd say, brings the British Empire to an end. I mean, the withdrawal's pretty much completed by 19... Do you think that's inevitable? I know there's a bit well, of a sidetrack, because I, I know somebody like Enoch Powell would say it's inevitable from the Suez crisis. You know, I, I think he said to the Empire loyalists, you know, what are you fighting for? It's over. I think it, it is. I mean, you can see that the problem of how do you maintain imperial power in an age of resistance to imperial mm. power, nationalist resistance to imperial power. It's there right from the First World War. You could even argue it's there like, yeah. before then, but it's we abs- encouraged it. abs- absolutely <laughs> there in the Middle East by the 1920s. That's why formally there has to be an independent Iraq. Formally there's an independent Egypt in, in, uh, mm-hmm. in 1922. Um, I, I think though what really changes for the British strategically with, the, with both the withdrawal and the closure of the Suez Canal is, is that now the argument about oil, which is pretty central to the geopolitical calculation, once the Suez Canal is closed, mm. then that means that being quite close to Israel loses its significance where oil is concerned. Because oil has always been like double-edged, if you like. On the one hand, it's about where do you get it from, mm-hmm. like which countries have it, which obviously doesn't mean Israel. But also it's about how do you transport it cheaply yeah. to Europe, which meant 
the Suez Canal. It was not only the pipelines as well, but it principally meant the Suez Canal for Britain. And then Israel is central to the defence of the Suez Canal. But once NASA has shown that he can close a canal for eight years, then that side of the oil calculus goes away. Yeah, and that, and that's how you understand the 73 Yom Kippur war then. Because in 67, we'd had Wilson, he'd been very supportive of Israel. And then in 73, we have Edward Heath. And he basically is pretty, he perhaps behaves pretty appallingly. And he's, I mean, his focus is just ultimately on escaping the oil embargo. Is is that right? From the from Yeah, I mean, he both wants bilateral deals with Arab oil producing states, but he also has a policy of arms embargo on all sides. Right, in all sidism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and then that, is actually, I think, is an interesting then turning point within the Labour Party's relationship yeah. to this because Wilson is still the leader mm-hmm. of the Labour Party in the autumn of 1973. And he absolutely wants Labour to oppose that in the House of Commons. And he wants a three-line whip yeah. on it, but he isn't able to do that. He's already now the strength of opinion within the Labour Party makes that difficult. And I think there's about in the, about 80 Labour MPs who end up rebelling. Is it that high? Yeah, in, in Richard Johnson's a really excellent account of Labour's historic relationship with Israel, he has this fantastic quote from Wilson to Roy Jenkins, his deputy. Says, Look, Roy, I've accommodated your fucking conscience for years. Now you're going to have to take account of mine. He's talking about having to take account of Jenkins' conscience over Europe. And now he's saying you're going to have to take account of my conscience over this Israel issue. But of course, the British statecraft is not concerned. It's thinking purely geopolitically at this point. It is, but I think that that is absolutely the case. And in that respect, then the, the British government is behaving like all the other West European governments, except for the Netherlands. So the Netherlands yeah. is subject to the oil embargo. By why, the why did they do that Arab then? These, these... States. I think that there's the, the Dutch commitment to support for Israel runs quite strong for like historic right. reasons to okay. do with the, a conscience issue. the Second World war. I think though it's clear from this point on really that the politics within the Labour Party is changing because if you take Mm. someone like Michael Foote, Mm -hmm. future leader of the the Labour Party, who'd been one of the harshest critics of the 1939 Mm -hmm. white paper and generally been pretty pro uh, supportive of Israel, he becomes quite critical after this point. And I think that we have to kind of like think about this in the context of what's changing both the nature of the left internationally Mm -hmm. and the way in which the Palestinian cause is being uh, presented. So on that score, on the Palestinian side, in 1969, Yasser Arafat Mm -hmm. became leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, a, a kind of charismatic leadership I think that hadn't had Mm -hmm. before and he was very keen from the beginning to present the Palestinian cause as the primary anti-colonial cause Mm -hmm. in the world so he said this is like being on the side of the Vietnamese against the Americans this is being on the side of the Algerians against the French and that this shapes then I think a lot of the narrative that in the end will you know shape somebody like Jeremy Corbyn. Right, exactly. This is the same it. struggle as it becomes Northern a, Ireland. It becomes or, a really yeah. important symbol of the anti-colonial internationalist 
left. And then that means that the Labour Party is going to be in a different position in relation to these issues than it was previously. And all that is happening at a time in which the old strategic complexity that Britain was embroiled in in trying to deal with these questions which make it move this way and that way has come to an end that the British geopolitical interests in terms of the Middle East are much more straightforwardly bound up with the supply of oil. And I think that's true even after the Suez Canal opens again in 1975. So in a way, it doesn't become a geopolitical issue anymore from the 70s onwards. It's now a kind of ideological frame. How do you see Israel? How do you see Palestine? Do you see you, the left no longer seem to see it or large portions, a growing portion on the left, no longer see it as utopian, kibbutzim, yeah. you know, socialist experiment in the desert. It's now seen as occupying force, a proxy of imperial America or the imperial West. And Yasser Arafat is, you know, a great icon of the anti-imperial struggle, along with, I don't know, Jerry Adams and... Gaddafi and, and all of these figures. And that seems to me that's the frame still, right? Yeah. And I think there's two things I would add to that. The first is, is that the American policy under Johnson, certainly in the latter part of Johnson's presidency, including during the, the 1967 war, is now much more strongly supportive of Israel than either of his two predecessors, so mm -hmm. either than Kennedy, really, who been in conflict with the Israeli government about the nuclear program or Eisenhower, I think, back to the Suez crisis. So if anti-Americanism is part of this, then it's much more clearly bound to Israel from 1967 than I think was previously the case. I think the other thing we should bring out is the, the shift in the turn in Israeli domestic yes, policies. Yes. 1977, Likud party comes to power for mm -hmm. the first time. So this is the first time that the Israeli left is not in government and... Led by Begin, who had been one of the prime absolutely. sort of fighters against British control all the way He'd back. He'd been in one, tied to one of the paramilitaries. Yeah, yeah. And that this is uh, a party that was committed to, if you like, greater Israel. Yeah. That this wasn't like we're looking to exchange peace for land or land for peace, whichever way you want to think about it. This was much more a government that was willing to talk the language of, no, we will settle, have settlers. Yeah, expansion. Expansion. Mm. It still was a government that reached a peace agreement with Egypt that was formalised in, in 1979. But in terms of the Palestinians themselves, mm. then it has a rather different yeah. uh, attitude. And as we know, the right has largely dominated Israeli politics since. Yeah, I, th I think that sense of what Israel is, Israel is no longer seen as a, a left-wing country, you know, in quotes, it's a right-wing country allied to right-wing presidents in the States. And that seems to have grown over over time considerably. You see Ariel Sharon coming prime minister in, in 2001 and being prime minister for, is it five years until 2000 and, and 2006? I think this is a crucial period, right? Or, or how we understand where we are today is this period from 2001 after 9-11, where I think you see this frame, a new frame kind of emerges of I think what was, you know, quotes then like Islamofascism versus Islamophobia, you know, and the concern. And this is a, what gets Blair into particular difficulties because he's leading this party, which has become 
certainly skeptical of Israel because of the right-wing turn in Israel, because of the failure of the uh, peace accords, the Oslo peace accords, because of all the things we've discussed, the frame in which the world is seen and the fact that we don't have these interests anymore. So we see it ideologically. And that way that Blair sees it dominates his foreign policy. And obviously you've got the war in Afghanistan, then the war in Iraq. And I think the war in Iraq just discredits that sort of way of understanding things. And he gets into particular trouble, doesn't he, in 2006, Israel's war on Hezbollah. And I think that that kind of, this is a moment which just shows how much things have changed in the way that the Israel issue is seen politically. I think in Blair's memoir, A Journey, uh, he says that this issue was more damaging to him than anything uh, since Iraq. And I think this is the revealing quote. And it says, it had showed how far I had swung from the mainstream of conventional Western media wisdom and from my own people, as he put it. And I think that's right, isn't it? You know, Blair had backed Israel and didn't support the calls for ceasefire because he felt that it was Israel defending itself from Hezbollah. But that just wasn't the majority opinion on the left at all. Well, I think it's clearly pivotal to the way in which Blair had to set an exact timetable. Right, for his departure. For his departure. Yeah. Because he'd gone into, I think it was sort of the autumn before the 2005 election, saying he wasn't going to serve a, a full term, but hadn't exactly said what that might mean. Yeah. Gordon Brown was constantly putting pressure on him about setting a date for this departure. And it was a wake of that crisis in the summer of 2006. Yeah. That Brown finally got the date yeah. for leaving, which was the following um, summer uh, out of him. Now, I think one could perhaps say that there's a lot of things going on there, that it was an opportunity for Brown and the people supporting him to put pressure on. And because Brown himself was a long-standing supporter yeah. of uh, Israel, I'm not sure really there was going to be a great deal of difference really between Blair and Brown's opinion on that. But I think what it showed was just that it was not possible to lead the Labour Party from such an obviously pro-Israel point of view. I think there's something... Certainly when Israel was doing something mm. that involved military action. Yeah, yeah. I think there's something else going on as well, isn't it? Because Brown might instinctively have not been in too different a place to Blair in terms of his views on Israel. But by this point, and again, this is a quote from A Journey, Blair's um, memoir. He says, I'd come now uh, to see the entire conventional approach on dealing with this problem as itself part of the problem. He now saw it as a wider struggle between the strain of religious extremism in Islam and the rest of us. So I think that is mm. something new, is it? That is post 9-11. That is an idea that uh, Islamism is Islamofascism. That is the principal threat to, uh, you know, Western liberal values. And that comes to dominate Blair's mind. I don't think, I'm not sure if that is shared by Brown, who might see the world more economically. And then, of course, when Blair leaves in 2007, you have the financial crisis of 2008, which I think just from that moment on, I'm not sure of that Blair frame of Islamism being the primary threat to the West is any longer shared. It's the, you know, it's either, it, it's great power competition. Certainly into the 2010s, it's going to be great power competition. Yeah. And then you have all sorts of other things. And I think almost until... Now, I'm not sure if between 2008 and now, 
this idea of um, Islamism as the as a great threat, a sort of uh, existential threat. It's obviously there; it hasn't gone away, but it doesn't seem to be the dominant. It's not the dominant one in in Washington anymore. It's not been the dominant one in my coverage for the last few years, where you've been thinking about Russia or, or China or just economic problems, economic crisis, Brexit, all of these other things, they seem to have um, overtaken. But that's it's almost like it's laid dormant and it's now coming back. No, but I think we need to get on, though, don't we, to, to Jeremy Corbyn? Of course, yeah. Because this brings the issue of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And it isn't necessarily just bound up with Israel question in this respect to the fore of Labour Party politics to the point that it is the reason why Jeremy Corbyn isn't yeah yeah no longer a Labour MP and and you could say that actually a pretty significant part of Keir Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party has been bound up with with trying to repudiate the Corbyn legacy Mm -hmm. uh, in this respect and what's interesting about it here in a way is is that all that played out between 2015 and 2000 and so when Corbyn became leader the December 2019 general election without the Israel question actually to the fore I mean there was the Israel Gaza war of like 2014 mm-hmm. but during that period there isn't anything hugely significant um, I, I, I'm not saying that to minimize what's yeah, going yeah. on in the West Bank or in Gaza or in Israel itself but they're not big, big crisis moments of the kind that we've been Yeah, the world's focus is is primarily on something else. But Corbyn is an expression of this new left that had emerged in the 1960s and 70s. That's exactly how he sees the world. It's his primary way of seeing the world is through this uh, idea of, um, it's anti-colonial. It's the anti-colonial struggle. It's why he supported Sinn Féin. He he supports Irish nationalism. He supports uh, Latin American struggle. This is his primary motivation. And then he, that is exactly how he saw the Israel-Palestine. I'm not saying it's wrong or it's right, but that's how he understands the world. And that is core to understanding the anti-Semitism crisis, because he would say, you know, he's not an anti-Semite, he just, he's supportive of the Palestinian people. But it is striking, and this is something that Keir Starmer is having to deal with, that, you know, the Equality and Human Rights Commission found that Labour had broken the law over its failures to tackle anti-Semitism. This is the only, the second British political party ever to be investigated as such, the other one being the British National Party. So when Keir Starmer comes in 2019 in his victory speech, he says he's committed to tearing out this poison by its roots, the poison being anti-Semitism. So in a way, it's, it's, it's impossible to understand Jeremy Corbyn without all of that history that we've talked about and how attitudes shifted in the sort of late 60s and 70s. And then it's impossible to understand Keir Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party without understanding the failures of Jeremy Corbyn. But also, I think what we can see is that Starmer made it central to his project, if you like, of leadership to repudiate Corbyn over this issue, perhaps more than any other um, question. That's why Jeremy Corbyn is no longer a Labour MP. Now he's having to deal with politically the implications of that and the consequences of that at a time when the Israel-Palestine question is right yes, to the fore. Yes. I mean, more so than it's been in a very, very long time. And you can see from the pressure that he's been under from people who don't belong to the, the Corbynista part of the left, that this is still a really deep political problem. I mean, I mean by that in that sense is, is like, how is Keir Starmer 
as a leader going to deal with the really divergent nature of opinion on this question yeah. within the Labour Party. But do you think that view of Israel as a kind of settler colonial country, that, that sort of new left view, that seems more dominant now than perhaps ever before on the left. So that's like the structural well, part reality. of the left, I would still say. Yeah, but this, the, the sort of instinctive support for Israel as a left-wing cause, I don't think is that deep anymore. So even if you have an instinctive sympathy and support for Israel's right to defend itself or horror at what happened on a purely human level, I'm not sure how strategically deep the support is on the left anymore for Israel. And that is a fundamental problem that Starmer has. And then you've got this other thing, which is the how much are we going to understand the threat to Israel as part of a wider Islamist threat? I don't know where that's going to end up in British politics or Western politics. No, but I think that part of the difficulty is that for Starmer is, and indeed for any like British politician, but it really the internal political complexities rest on Starmer's shoulders more than yeah. Sunak's, is that in lots of ways, what the British government says and does, or indeed what the, the leader of the opposition says and does, is in the big geopolitical scheme of things, neither here nor there. So it can be Absolutely. a real complicated domestic political problem without it actually making any difference. And then you've got the question of like, well, how far does the man who wants to be the British Prime Minister within 18 months or so really want to put any distance between the American position and the British position because if we go back through the story to where we started this half from this is probably a good place for us then mm -hmm. to end is that it starts with us handing over a problem to the americans essentially we look like we're handing it to the un but yeah. we're kind of really handing it to the americans because we don't know what to do about it that was testimony mm -hmm. to the incoherence of our of the british imperial position by that point or at least it's very complicated relationship to uh, american um, power so the question of like how much to support the United States is actually, in a way, the central geopolitical question now for Britain. And interestingly, that's obviously goes to the heart of the Blair's decision making about the Iraq war. Yeah, it's going to be even more structurally challenging for Starmer if Trump comes in again. And we keep coming back to this, but that's looming, isn't it? So you have, he's got the pressure from below, which is that the left is instinctively wary at the very least of uh, supporting Israel. And it's it will show sympathy, but it, it, it's very unhappy with military action that Israel takes to defend its position. And if it means supporting Trump in the White House, I don't see how Starmer can possibly politically hold that position. It would be very difficult. I think on that note of like <laughs> yeah. the relationship between British politics and American politics, again, we might say we should finish for this week, but I'm sure we'll be returning to it in the future. Thanks so much for listening to that conversation. We really enjoyed it. If you liked it, please do share it with your friends and families. Remember to subscribe. It really helps. And thanks again to you and Daughtry, our producer. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.